Galatians 5. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. It's the word of God. Well, my name is uh, Bruce O'Neill, and I pastor here, and I hope to explain this very uh, emotional uh, text of Paul's, where he is incredibly upset about what is going on in the churches of Galatia. All right, let me uh, say this about Paul. These are the most shocking words that Paul will ever write, that we have copies of. Uh, he uses some language, and, and particularly this last verse that Mike read to us about wishing that those who were doing this to you, that were teaching this stuff to you, would emasculate themselves. That's as, that's as harsh or as shocking as Paul gets in the Bible. And you might think that's unchristian or ungraceful, but when you understand what he is standing against, what he is uh, believing that if this is believed that it wrecks not just these churches, but the gospel itself. And so Paul doesn't really get exercised. I mean, in, in Corinth, where there were 13 different problems in that church in Corinth, he never says this uh, to them. He calls them my beloved children. It's only when there is a challenge to the gospel do we see Paul this excised. And so let me prepare our hearts to hear what Paul is going to say by praying together. Uh, Father, help us to understand what we hear. Help us to believe what we hear. And help us to live what we hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let me start with uh, Dr. Benet uh, Brown. She is a research professor, which is another way of saying she doesn't have to work with students. She uh, got into research uh, uh, work uh, in order to avoid people. She got into it because she didn't want to be vulnerable. She didn't want to be exposed. And so she wanted to hide. And the way to sometimes for people to do that in the academic world is to do research and primarily make money by doing that research. Then they don't necessarily always require you to do classes. Or if you do, you work with graduate students who are troubling, but at least they're not as troubling as undergrads. 
This is her work. She wrote a book called The Power of Vulnerability. She's actually written a number of books. Uh, but this one became pretty famous because she was asked to do a TED Talk on this book, The Power of Vulnerability. And this particular TED Talk is in the top three of all TED Talks in the history of TED Talks. That is, it is in every since she delivered it, people have listened to it over and over and over again because of something she says about vulnerability that piques our interest. This is what she said. I discovered that the most joyful people, the happiest people, the most wholehearted people, the most grounded people were the ones who embraced vulnerability. That's why people listen to her TED Talk, is that we want to be happy, we want to be fulfilled, we want to be grounded, we want to be people that enjoy life, and she seems to have the secret. But in her attempts to write this book, she had a breakdown. And when she had a breakdown, she had a breakthrough. She went on to say, vulnerability feels like weakness to us, but it is not weakness. It takes great courage to be vulnerable, and vulnerability is the key to happiness. So let me say this up front so you know. If you've been to conferences, if you've attended a TED Talk, or maybe you've gone to some seminar where they have promised you that if you will master what the speaker says, because he has mastered it, then you've got it made. And you've paid hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of dollars, to get this information that he has mastered and is willing, or she, to deliver it to you. That is not how the church works. The church is not a place where the preacher has mastered what he is going to say. And if you will just follow his path of mastering the material, then you can master the material too. That's not how the church works. Because if we put our preachers on that kind of pedestal, then the fall is great when you find out they have feet of clay. The truth about preaching is that it is one beggar showing other beggars where to get food. And so as a result, if that's an insult to you, that you're a beggar, well, you're being led by the greatest beggar of all. And that should comfort you. I just want to show you where the food is. Here at EP, we talk a lot about the gospel. And we try to explain the gospel in in as many ways as we possibly can to give you the multifaceted understanding of a deep and rich and profound life-changing message of good news. But in order to do that, sometimes we want to reduce it to where it's memorable, where you can walk out and begin to think about it on your own and not just in the context of some complexity of many words. And so in to do that, this morning I'm going to give you a few words to summarize the gospel. I understand this isn't all that the gospel is. Just so you don't quote me that this is all that the gospel is. You know, when you tweet, you only get 140 characters. This fits. The gospel can be summarized by Jesus plus nothing. 
That is, your salvation is accomplished, your continued salvation and your ultimate salvation. This is the way Paul puts it in the, in the book of Romans. He says, you were saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. And all of that had nothing to do with us. Not our strengths, our weaknesses, our beauty, not our smarts, not our works. Nothing can be added to what Jesus has done. I love being able to walk here. I just noticed that. I couldn't do that back when there were wires, but I feel free. There's almost a cadence to it. All right, so that I don't lose my spot, I just want you to understand you did nothing. I did nothing in order to earn salvation, nor to keep salvation, nor to make it all the way. I think that's very important as we understand what Paul is going to deal with here because that message of good news that Jesus, apart from you, and while you were still a sinner, while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. He accomplished salvation without any help on our part. I think that's important as we understand what Paul is leaning against, what he's so concerned, what upsets him so much. Some will say, if I say that, and I say that a lot, that, okay, Bruce, that's great, got it, okay, okay, got the gospel, that was really easy, Jesus plus nothing, I wrote it down, I'm going to put it on a, on a, on a, 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 a mat, my wife's going to crochet it, or I'm going to crochet it, let's be equal here. And complementarian, he might be the better crocheter. I'm going to put it in a frame and we're going to put it at our house. Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. Got it. Let's move on. Let's get to the hard stuff of Christianity. Tell us what to do. This is the hard part. This is the hardest thing that God will ever say to us. That Believing by faith that Jesus plus nothing is going to be the hardest thing going on in your life. And it's so hard that he had to even give us the faith to receive the message of the good news. Because apart from that, we wouldn't believe it. Because it's that hard. Well, isn't there a danger to preaching grace? Isn't there a danger to this gospel? Yes, there's not just one danger. There's two dangers. And Paul deals with both dangers in the book of Galatians, but he does it disproportionately because of import. What he's saying is that the first danger, the one I spend, chapters 1 through chapter 5, verse 12, is the worst and most dangerous uh, uh, opponent of the gospel in the world of that time and our time as well. And then I'm going to pick up in verse 13 of chapter 5 all the way to the end, which is only one more chapter, and I'm going to talk about the other danger. Here's the two dangers to the gospel. The first danger of the gospel, the one he spends almost all of his time on, because it's the greater of the two dangers then and now, is taking Jesus plus nothing and saying, no, it's Jesus plus something. Adding something to the gospel so that we can feel either a part of our own salvation or that something was required. He's going to spend the disproportionate time on that, and that's what we're looking at this morning. But just so you know what the other danger is, beginning in verse 13, he begins talking about how grace creates freedom. Remember, verse 1 of chapter 5 says, It is for freedom 
that we've been set free. He doesn't pick that topic back up until verse 13. And he says, some of you are using your freedom in Christ as a license to do what you want, including sin. Because you have found freedom in Christ, you have determined that it's okay to continue in sin. And it's not. So those are twin dangers of the gospel. We recognize that here at EP. But because the greater danger is to not dilute the gospel, to nullify the gospel is the way Paul puts it here, is we're spending a disproportionate time in our church on the first danger. And so that's what Paul does here, and it's what exercising. The context of this passage is simply that Paul has come through, planted these churches, led people to Christ. Other people have begun hung around the, hang around these churches, and, and some of them are teachers, some of them from Galatia, some from other areas, and they've come in and said, yeah, Paul's right. They're not saying that Paul's wrong. Paul's right. Jesus came to die for your sins. Trust in him by faith alone. But... In order to complete your salvation, you must also become a good Jew. Because he's talking to primarily Gentiles, he needs to, he's trying, these teachers are saying, okay, it's great for you to be a Christian as a Gentile. That's the good news because before you couldn't, but now that you can, please also keep the Jewish calendar. In specific, both its right of entrance, which is called circumcision, and its rite of remembrance, which is called Passover. Both of these are imported, but specifically Paul is talking about the entrance into the people of God because that's what's at issue here about salvation. The entrance into the people of God, he says, that is wrong. But he's addressing this issue of circumcision because of its tie to the gospel. Paul is given us his most cutting remark, and the pun is intended, in order to say this is dangerous. It is the most prodigious. It's the most ubiquitous. It's the most well-accepted danger to the gospel, and that is Jesus plus something. Our real problem, our real struggle, my real struggle, is the refusal to accept or at least to resist grace alone. Even those who believe in works salvation believe in grace. So it's a straw man to say that people don't believe in grace. Everyone I know that has any relationship to the Bible believes in grace. The problem is it's not grace alone. It's always grace plus works It's always grace plus something that we can bring to the table, that we can take pride in, that we can take credit, that we can say before God, see how devoted I am to you. Now, give me the blessings of my salvation. That's what he's addressing in this passage. We talk about grace. We sing about grace. But the truth is we all resist grace because grace is insulting. If you don't feel the insulting of grace, it's simply because you don't understand grace yet. Because to understand what he's offering here that had nothing to do with you, to receive that is to admit that the only thing you bring to your salvation is the sins that made it necessary. And that's hard. It's like when Jesus washes the feet of the disciples, one of the disciples, Peter, of course, stands up and says, no, Jesus, you can't wash me. No, that's my job for you. And it really was. In the ancient world, the lowest 
among, not the guests, the lowest in the household, typically a slave, would wash the feet, but never the host, never the, the owner, never the leader. And so the leader is sitting down and washing the feet of his disciples. And one of them, Peter, recognizes this social faux pas, this wrong uh, practice, and draws attention. No, Jesus, you can't do this. I can do it, but you can't. And so Jesus says, well, if you won't let me wash your feet, then you will have no part of me. That is the offense of the cross. The offense of the cross is our pride. Not only was Jesus crucified on the cross, but so was our pride. The fact that we don't bring anything lovely, beautiful, acceptable, wanting to the cross. We just bring our need. We bring our sin in that while we were still sinners. That is, before God, you can do anything for God, you must sit down and allow God to serve you. You must let God love you in the only way He will. Full of grace. It's the only way He serves. And if you say, we need to turn the volume up on our works together, you've missed the gospel, we need to turn up the gospel. Because before we can ever serve, we have to sit down and allow Him to wash our feet. That's grace. What makes us lost, unloving, unfree people is our refusal to accept grace alone. And we have countless versions of that in this room. Do you know why it's so hard to accept grace? To accept grace requires us to accept our vulnerability. This is why Benet Brown is so right. I love it when TED Talks actually agree with Jesus. My picture is, is that, that Benet Brown climbs this mountain of truth and she gets up there and she finds Jesus already there. If common grace ever finds its reality, it's in the special grace. They're not opposed to one another. But vulnerability, we have to be honest, terrifies us. It terrifies us because we have this illusion in our minds that we are in control. And we're not. But we have that illusion. And grace means we are out of control. A a parent, an adult, a true grown-up has to come in the room and reestablish control because we are out of control. And to admit that about ourselves is vulnerability. When we tell people we're fine, we're good, we're okay, we're lying, we're never good, okay, except in Jesus Everything else apart from Jesus is I'm out of control. I'm a sinner without hope, except his sovereign grace. We resist the very thing that leads us to our joy. We are powerless to provide what we desperately want and need. And that is that we contribute nothing, just in case... You get the test. The answer is nothing. We contribute nothing. That's our true condition. Therefore, we stand literally naked before Jesus in need of clothes. And the cross is our only hope. That's why in verse 11, Paul says, this is an offense of the cross. This is why Paul waits until chapter 
5, verse 13, before he goes on to the next one, because this is what we struggle with, that the only way that he can love us, the only way that he will love us is full of grace. And so let me give you a picture of that. I uh, sometimes will uh, take care of my uh, grandchildren at night. The the kids have gone off to dinner, and, and one of the things that they love to do is to take baths. And those of you who are parents can remember this scene. You, you bathe them, and if you are not quick, I've got three of them, so they go different directions quickly. They will run up and down the halls after they get out of the tub, and what are they doing? Naked, 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 naked. This is the picture of our vulnerability. Because those kids have no shame. My greatest sadness is that someday they're going to learn how to cover shame. But until then, they can run around and say, Nakey, 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 because they feel no shame. And so they can expose themselves to the world. We can't or we won't because vulnerability means we have to talk about the real us that we don't even talk to ourselves about, much less someone else. But that is freedom. That's what it looks like. That's what it sounds like. That's what it tastes like. I loved watching the Super Bowl. Just for a second. These are my Philadelphia Eagle fans. I didn't watch it. I didn't enjoy it because the Philadelphia Eagles won. Although I was glad to see them win because I'm not a New England Patriots fan. I got the same response at 8 o'clock. But nobody that's sane, nobody that has a reason thought the Philadelphia Eagles was going to win that game. Even the most patriotic fan could not imagine that the Philadelphia Eagles would win that game. But they won that game. And did you see what the crowd did? Man, those New England Patriot fans had to get out of the building because the Eagle fans were taking over and they were throwing their arms up and they were cheering. They were loosed. They were free by the good news of their gospel that their team won. Why can we not do that in worship? A much greater victory was won. Ten years from now, except for the Philadelphia Eagle fans, nobody's going to remember that they won. Sorry. It's been 2,000 years since Christ died on a cross. But that freedom that he launched at that moment should cause us to get out of our seats and raise those palm branches like those kids and clap and shout. If they had something to cheer about at a Super Bowl, why don't we have something to cheer about every day of our lives? We are free. The truth is, have you tasted that freedom? If you've tasted that freedom... Why aren't we running around naked, naked, naked? (laughs) The good news is that Christ has set us free. And that's a paradox. 
Because the text in verse 1 says it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Freedom is the natural outcome of grace. But then he says, stand firm. How do you stand in grace? If grace is free and flowing like a waterfall, what's this mean to stand in? I'll tell you, because he answers the question and it's not what you think. Stand in grace isn't to stand under the waterfall if the water is grace. He tells you in verse 1, by not submitting again to a yoke of slavery. You want to stand in grace, refuse to return to performance. Refuse to return to works. Because that is a yoke that is tied around the necks of millions and millions, if not billions of people on this planet. You don't fall back into the trap of performance. You don't just delude the good news. You nullify the good news when you return to a yoke of slavery. Why does this message of grace not resonate? I asked somebody, I asked a group of pastors that I meet with that preach the gospel, and I, why don't people just shout? Why, why don't we clap? Why don't, why don't we raise our hands? Why don't we stomp our feet? Why don't we move? And he said, it's because it's too abstract. You may need to use stories to help people understand just what Jesus has done for us. So let me give you this quick story. It's about two orphan boys who were adopted by this American family. And this is not a romantic adoption story where it all works out the way we think in our mind these adoption stories do. This one doesn't. It's two boys that had been horribly, their brothers had been horribly abused in one orphanage after another, one group home after another, one foster parents after another, until this family adopts them. They've had a, a history of going from group home to group home and then being sent back to the orphanage simply because their behavior is too bad. It's out of control. And so this begins to happen in this home. If it was true in the orphanage, if it was true in the foster homes, it's going to be true in the new home. And so what dad does, he knows this has been what's happened to them is somebody has sent them back. Somebody has rejected them because of their bad behavior. And so the father sits the two boys down with a mother watching and he says this to them. Boys, there is nothing you can do that's going to cause me to love you less than I do right now. Then he says, there's nothing you can do that's going to make me send you back. Do you hear the gospel? The Father in heaven is looking at you this morning, knowing exactly what you did last night, what you have done this morning, and says, there's nothing that you can do that's going to cause me to love you less. There's nothing that you can do that's going to make me send you back to the darkness of this world, to the chaos. You are mine. They didn't get it right away. What they first heard was what every man has ever said to these boys. Shape up or ship out. Fear has never motivated to true change. The law does not save you. It's only when they became vulnerable and the parents became vulnerable, when both of them began to work out of this fruit of this love and grace to one another, did change come. And it didn't come in a day. It came in years. And that's the way we are. God has told us 
He demonstrated his own love toward us while we were still sinners. And that has taken years for us to understand and certainly to experience. There's a way in which Christ can be of no benefit to you. Now, that's hard to hear because it's the warning of this passage. Verse 2, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, that if you go back to the performance track, Christ will be of no advantage to you. That word advantage means benefit. These people are not renouncing Christ. They're not saying, Paul's talked about Jesus, but we're talking about works. It wasn't juxtaposed that way. It was literally, Jesus is good. Jesus gets you in the door, but you stay in the room by doing good works, by being circumcised into the people of God. And Paul adds that if you add anything to Jesus, if you take anything and say that is part of the parcel, before, during, or after, you're nullifying his work. You're obliterating the grace And that that case, the gospel can be of no benefit to you. If we add grace, we destroy the gospel. If we add anything to grace, we're destroying the gospel for salvation. Adding to grace makes it something, but it is not grace any longer. Paul says in verse 3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision. He is obligated to keep the whole law. Do you hear Paul's argument? If you're going to return to a yoke of slavery, you don't have to just keep this one law of circumcision, but you have to keep all 613 laws in the Bible. But you don't have to just keep the 613 laws in the Bible, but you have to keep them perfectly. Do you hear what he's saying in that verse? If you're going to return to the law as a means of salvation, remember what the requirement is. Keep the law perfectly, all of them. And there's 613 of them. Remember, Paul says, I didn't even know sin, coveting was a sin until I read it. You're obligated to know all 613 and crochet them onto a frame in your house. And by this law, I will be saved if I keep them perfectly. There are only two options. Jesus plus nothing or slavery to the law. That's the only two options. You can begin to hear Paul's urgency. Mike was talking about the emotion here. You can hear Paul, his blood pressure is going up as he's writing this. You are severed from Christ. What a word. Severed, cut off. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. If we insist on cutting ourselves, we cut ourselves off from God. Too many of us have fallen away from grace or are currently falling from grace. Now, don't let that bother you unless it needs to bother you. Commentators, and I read a bunch of them the last couple of weeks on this passage, and all of them, as soon as they understand what Paul is saying in that verse, they immediately begin to defend, you can't lose your salvation, assurance of salvation, because that verse begins to make you question whether I'm truly saved. And that is Paul's point. Paul's point isn't that you can lose grace. Paul's point is you can fall from grace by never having it in the first place. That's his argument here is, have you truly been adopted? Have you truly been brought into the family as those two boys? Are you really part of the family? Have you truly received grace? What do you think Paul's concerned about here? Paul's not concerned about getting their theology straight. 
That would be gospel plus good theology, and that still would be adding to the gospel. Paul's concern is about their experience of grace. Have they had an experience of the true grace of God alone for salvation? Now, don't let that bother you unless it needs to bother you because you haven't yet received grace. You remember the story that Jesus told about dropping seeds on four different kinds of soils? There's only one Christian in the whole bunch. You remember it was, it was seeds that were following, falling on uh, uh, thorns and thistles, choking it out. There was uh, seeds falling on rocky soil, which means that, that there was just a thin layer of soil which would cause the plant to grow, but eventually, because the roots couldn't go down, it would die. But then there was this soil that was good soil that could go deep, and it, it, it bore fruit. And, and, and so the only one that truly received grace is the one where the grace went down to the heart. The roots went all the way in. The penny dropped. The idea of what grace truly is is understood and lived and believed. Paul's warning his listeners, and he really is warning us about the danger to grace. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way. This is a warning passage. It means God uses warnings to preserve his saints. You know, we argue in Presbyterian churches about perseverance versus uh, uh, preservation and that God preserves those or preserves those that persevere. And, And the reality is one of the ways that God preserves us is by warning us so that we would return to him. It is intended to push us back to Jesus' arms. Now, I don't have long, but this is the main point of the passage. And that is faith working through love. Grace needs to pierce our hearts. How? By faith. Look at verse 5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. This is the height of Paul's argument here about Jesus plus nothing. Now Paul gives us his trump card. Verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. The whole letter is to people who believe Jesus plus circumcision. Paul is saying... If you're relying on circumcision to be included in the people of God, you've added to the gospel and therefore you have no gospel at all. But it's also true to say, because I'm not circumcised, then I'm in. And Paul would say, if you're relying upon the fact of your freedom of not being circumcised, then you too have added to the gospel. And it's no gospel at all. Therefore, our freedom is not our bragging point. It's a byproduct of believing grace. That's the only thing that counts. Faith. Faith working through love. Is grace then added? Is faith then added to grace? And therefore you have Jesus plus faith? No. Don't undo the whole letter by this phrase. Real faith leads to an expression of that faith. That is, faith never travels alone. We are saved by faith alone, but once we believe, faith is never alone. Real faith leads to an expression, always. If faith does not lead to some expression of love in your life, then either you don't believe the grace of the gospel or what you believe is not true. Those are your only options. Because true faith always expresses itself through love. 
How do we know we believe? How do we know that we have received this fullness of grace? First thing we have to ask ourselves is why we do what we do. Go at the motives, not at the behavior. We express our faith through love because we know and we have experienced the grace of God, the love of God for us personally. This is the only way to know if the penny is truly dropped, if you actually believe the gospel. This is the only way to see your heart. How? By seeing the fruit. The fruit of grace is Jesus plus nothing expressed through love. This is the way Jonathan Edwards, the greatest mind the Americans have ever produced, said it. Love is the sum of all virtue. A true Christian's faith always produces good works through love. What's make something truly virtuous? That's what his whole essay is on. What is virtue? He says, we tend to focus on the acts and ask, was it good? Did what he did, was it good? What makes something virtuous, Jonathan Edwards says, is why you do it, not what you did. And that's why this phrase is that we not only need to repent, the difference between religious people and Christians is that religious people repent just like Christians do, but Christians repent of why they do what they do, not just what they do. Edwards goes on and says, no matter how many of our acts of justice or generosity or devotion, there is nothing given to God if God is not the ultimate end or aim for what is given. The gifts are an offering to some idol, but not given to God unless he is the chief end of the act. This is why God cares so much about our motivations. For something to be virtuous, it needs to be motivated by love. It doesn't work like this. The husband goes to the wife. They're in the living room and they've got all cozy. And he says, honey, here are some flowers because tomorrow I'm going to ask you, is it okay to play golf with my buddies? Or the reverse The wife says, honey, why don't you go play golf with your buddies because the girls and I want a day at the spa. You see, the motive is to get what I want rather than just service for service sake, for the glory of God. Motives matter. But it's really that hardly ever that obvious. If our children could be that obvious, can we ever be free from self-interest? Can we ever have fewer motives? Yes, when you die. <laughs> Dr. Brown says only vulnerable people can, can be truly free to love. And she says what gives you the courage to be vulnerable, this is where she parts from the gospel, you have to know you are worthy. That part's okay. But then she says for you to figure out your worth, you have to look inside you. Edward says, no, no, don't look inside, look outside you and at the cross. Paul puts it this way. You must look at the offense of the cross in order to purify your motives. Because it is there that our pride is crucified. Our common plight is our need for grace. And therefore, we all stand naked and empty-handed before God, clinging to the cross alone. All other saviors are sinking sand. This is the only thing that will give you the courage to be vulnerable. 
And living vulnerable is the only way you can live free. We live free because we are already loved. The reason children can run around and scream, naked, 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 is because they feel free. The reason the Philadelphia Eagle fans could cheer is because at that moment they didn't care about anything else but that their team won. When we gather for worship, is there anything else that has crowded your mind that have kept you from the presence of God? Then that is the yoke of slavery. You have been set free. For freedom's sake, you've been set free. We try to make ourselves beautiful when God has already said you are beautiful and you are mine. This takes an enormous amount of courage to live vulnerable, to sit down, to not not be Martha and run around and clean the place up and get it ready, but to simply enjoy him and what he's done for us. When that happens to us, when that moment truly gets hold of our church, people will be paying millions of dollars for 30-second ads to show the world just how free we are and how vulnerable we've become. Until then, they'll keep buying millions of dollars of 30-second ads at a Super Bowl because people want to see that freedom. They want to see that level of victory in their world. And every Sunday, you hear that and you see that. You taste it. And the only way you will ever, I will ever live free and ever know that kind of love is if I become vulnerable to the cross. That my pride died there too. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We became beautiful. We weren't beautiful. Let's pray. Father, it is so true in this room, you create a mixture every Sunday morning. You put people in this room who love you and follow you and have tasted that grace and can't sit in their seats because they're so excited about what you have done through Jesus Christ on the cross. There are others in this room that have not yet tasted that grace and need to taste it and not just hear it, but believe it and live it. And so, Father, we pray you by the work of the Spirit that you might give them the faith to receive what Jesus has done. And then there's others of us in the room that are going back and forth all the time, trying to earn what has been freely given to make ourselves look better, to make ourselves more beautiful, when in reality you've already told us we're as beautiful as we will ever become because you have made us so. Help us to understand that you have told us we are yours and that there is nothing that we can do, good or bad, to change the fact that we are your children. And nothing will cause you to send us back. We are yours forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.